Well, once again, happy Resurrection Sunday. And because it is Resurrection Sunday, what a great day to talk about resurrection. So turn with me in your Bibles to John's Gospel, chapter 5. Now, in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 24 to 29 are a pretty comprehensive treatment of resurrection. From verses 24 through 26, Jesus is going to be talking about spiritual resurrection. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then verses 28 and 90 talks about physical resurrection. Verse 27 becomes the bridge where he talks about judging. And we'll see that as we go. But this is a very important section. In fact, it's been called by many one of the greatest passages in the Bible for bringing people to eternal life. And it begins with Jesus saying, most assuredly, I say to you, whenever Jesus Christ uses those words, your ears need to perk up because what he's about to say is very, very important. And then he adds a little personal touch. But I say to you, or I say to you, indicating that what he's about to say is not only very important, but it's coming from his heart. He wants this to be communicated to you in un no uncertain terms because the subject of resurrection deals with where you're going to spend eternity, and where you're going to spend eternity is not, there's nothing more important for any of us. So let's look at this, all right? In the first three verses, 24 to 26, Jesus Christ is going to be dealing with spiritual resurrection. He said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word. Now let me stop there. The word he's talking about is, of course, the gospel. He came to preach the gospel that people would be saved. I've come to seek and to save those who are lost, he said. So when he says, those who hear my word, he's, he's talking about the gospel there. To hear the gospel doesn't just mean to listen to it with your ears. If you study the Bible with regard to hearing, all right, uh, especially in terms of the gospel, you realize it means to receive it, to believe it, to obey it, and to act upon it. In other words, it's not just a passive hearing, it's an active embracing and applying into our lives. Look, many people have heard the gospel preached. We live in America, okay, Christian TV and radio and all kinds of things. People have heard the gospel preached, no doubt, many times over the course of their lives, but many of them have never done anything about it. It's gone in one ear and out the other. So he who hears my word, and then he says, and believes in him who sent me. What does that mean? Just believing in God, because God the Father sent the Son. Just believing that there is a God that's all a person needs to get into heaven. Well, of course not. Jesus Christ is not being general. He's just saying that the God who sent me, the Father, you need to understand. He is God. I'm his Son. He sent me on a mission to come to this world to tell you that he wants to spend eternity with you. We're all eternal beings, guys. We are going to spend eternity in one or two places. And God wants us to spend eternity with him. But the question is, is Jesus speaking generically here that anyone who simply believes in God is saved and going to heaven? Well, Jesus doesn't mean that just believing intellectually in God is going to save anybody. Many people in our country believe in God. In fact, James tells us the demons believe uh, and tremble. They're not going to heaven, obviously. No, the idea here is that one must believe God in the sense that must believe whom he sent Jesus Christ into the world. But what must they believe about Jesus Christ? Well, of course, they must believe that God sent Jesus into the world to be our Savior, to be our Savior. He must believe or she must believe that what God says about his son, Jesus Christ, that 
In the Word, it says He is the, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, part of the Godhead, the only way to the Father, no, the only way to heaven, uh, because He's the only one who could pay for our, uh, our sins on the cross through His own blood. Uh, Jesus said in, in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father. Nobody gets to heaven except through me. So that's very important that we believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. Because if he's not the only way, then why did he have to die? If we could just be, get to heaven by being good, or if you're a good Buddhist or a Muslim or somebody else that has faith, I mean, if many roads lead to heaven, why did Jesus have to die? Because there was no other way. There was no other way. And then he said, if you hear my word and believe in him who has sent me, you'll have everlasting life. He has everlasting life, verse 24. Notice the Lord doesn't say he who believes will have everlasting life, but that he or she already has at the moment they receive the gospel and put their faith in Christ. The idea is that there is life only in the Son. John the Apostle wrote this gospel. 53 times in his gospel he said, he talks about life because he wants us to understand that in Christ there is only this life. This is eternal life. Age of, Greek is Ionia Zoe, age abiding or everlasting life. Zoe, very important word. It doesn't just mean life stretched out into infinity. That wouldn't bless anybody if they were sick or infirmed or, or bedridden. I'd like to live forever. Are you kidding me? I'm hoping for death. The only thing that makes eternal life precious and desirable is it's not just life stretched out into infinity. It's a quality, not just a quantity. It's a quality of life. Zoe is a Greek word that means life in all of its fullness. Everything that makes life worth living multiply a billion times over. That's the eternal life that God wants to give us. Peter says it's, it's full of glory. It's unspeakable, the existence we're going to have in heaven. Paul says, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of unbelieving man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. I mean, the first five seconds we get to heaven, we're going to look around and go, man, I wish I would have died 20 years ago. <laughs> I mean, wow, this is something. Has everlasting life and shall not come into what? Judgment. You know who said this? Jesus, of course. But you know who he is? The judge. This is a promise from the judge. I'll never judge you. Verse 22, the father judges nobody, but has committed all judgment to the son. The, the Lord Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth. Uh, Peter and Paul both tell us that when he comes, he is going to judge the living and the dead and is appearing in his kingdom. So when Jesus Christ comes, he will judge. He will judge. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. So you receive me, believe the gospel, receive me as your Savior. You will never be judged. You'll never go to hell. That's the absence of the negative. That's great, isn't it? But you know what? God never just promises us the absence of the negative. He always then gives us the presence of the positive. It's great that once we accept Christ, we're not going to hell. But you know what? He said, but that's not all. I promise you that you're, gonna, you, you're my child now. I'm, in, I'm adopting you into my family. What did Paul say in Romans 8? We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Wow, it's great that sinners don't go to hell because we've accepted Christ. How much better for God to say, well, you know what, though? I'm going to adopt you into my family. You're going to live with me forever. In my presence is fullness of joy. My kingdom never ends. I want you to be with me. I want you as my child. And guess what? 
That's pretty meaningful when you realize God knows every sin we were ever going to commit. You know, when we adopt a child on the earth, we don't know what the future is going to bring. We do it out of love. If God had told us in advance all the sins, all the problems that child would have over the course of his life or her life, we may rethink that. God knew what he was getting himself into. He knew me, faults, flaws, all imperfections, sins I would ever commit. And he says, you know what, Phil? I know all the things you're going to do. But I love you. I want you to be my child. You pass from death into life. Before we got saved, guys, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritual death. We're talking about spiritual life. Well, here's, here's the, uh, the flip side, spiritual death. What is spiritual death? It is separation from God. You know, physical death, you die, and it's over. Spiritual death is a state of being where you're separated from God. Hell, that is eternal separation from God. I mean, somebody asked me after first service, they said, you know, I'm trying to understand this, um, this idea that you're talking about, this, this, you know, with hell. And I want to tell my dad, she said, that he doesn't believe in anything, but, but he's an eternal being. I don't want to see you have eternal life. I said, no, that's incorrect, because that implies a quality of life that he doesn't have. Tell him he's an eternal being. He will spend eternity in one of two places, in heaven with the Lord or in hell. Uh, you have to understand something, though. Spiritual death is the state of being separated from God. But on this earth, as Paul said, in him we live and move and have our being. So even unbelievers who are separated from God technically are still the recipients of his grace. They can have joy. They can have some peace. They can have uh, love. All those qualities are a part of God's nature, but his presence fills the universe. So right now, even unbelievers can enjoy some of the presence of God. But hell is going to be an existence completely removed from any of that. You will know no peace. You will know no joy. You will know no happiness. You will have nothing to look forward to. It will be an existence stretched out into infinity, the exact opposite of eternal life stretched out into infinity. The fullness of all that God is in our lives forever, hell will be the absence of all that God is in a person's existence for all eternity. It's a horrible thing to think about. But this is what the Bible is teaching. However, Ephesians 2, verse 1, we were once dead in trespasses and sins, right? Well, once we received Jesus Christ, he took us from that state and brought us into a state of spiritual life. We passed from spiritual death and we entered into spiritual life. And where we once were separated from God, as John said in his uh, gospel chapter 3, and the wrath of the judgment of God was abiding on us, because we were in Adam. In Adam all die, right? Adam blew it for everybody. He was the federal head of the human race. A federal head acts on behalf of everybody. Our president is the federal head of our country. He acts on behalf of all of us. And Adam was the federal head of the human race in the garden. When he blew it, he blew it for all his descendants. And all of us then entered into this world condemned sinners because original sin from Adam passed on to all of us. In Adam, all died. But in Christ, all shall be made what? Alive. Once I received Christ, I passed from spiritual death, separation from God, wrath of God abiding on me. I enter into a life that is incredible. It's spiritual. Jesus said in John 3, it is the life of the Spirit, born of the Spirit is what the idea is. Once I put my faith in Christ, 
The wrath of God no longer abides on me because I'm not a child of Adam anymore. I'm a child of God, and only the blessings of God abide on me now. We have passed from death to life. Verse 25, Most assuredly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Jesus, when he says the, the hour is coming, he doesn't mean a literal 60-minute hour. The time he's talking about. The hour or the time is coming, in fact, now is. Now is. When the dead, right, will hear the voice of the Son of God. What dead? Spiritually dead. Not, not physically dead. We'll talk about that in a moment. This is the spiritually dead, okay? Galatians 4.4, 4, it says that in the fullness of time, God sent his Son into the world born of a woman. When the time was right, and God has a time for everything he does, all the centuries of promises, 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 a Redeemer was coming 2,000 years ago. In a little town of Bethlehem, one night, the Savior was born. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And he came to give us life. The life that comes as he presents the good news that God so loved us. He didn't want us to die physically and spend eternity in hell. He sent his son that whoever believes in him will not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. When Jesus entered this earth, the good news of salvation shifted into high gear. I have come. And the dead who hear my voice, in other words, who pay attention, who accept the gospel, who believe in me, well, they will live. They will live. They will live a life that they never thought possible, a life that is spiritual, a life that is connected to God. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit. We were born once physically in Adam. Once you receive Christ, you're born again in the Spirit and reconnected with God because when Adam sinned, his spirit died. He had fellowship with God in the realm of the Spirit. He sinned, the Spirit died. The soul that sinned shall surely die, God said. And Adam didn't die physically in Eve. They died spiritually. They were severed from God. They became two-dimensional beings, living only for their bodily appetites. But once we give our hearts to Christ, we're born again of the Spirit. We're reconnected to God. And now we live a life that transcends this earthly, mundane life. We're not worried about just food, clothing, and so on. That's important. God says, I'll take care of it. But seek first the kingdom of God, my righteousness, and I will give you everything else you need in the physical. I have redeemed you. Your purpose is not to exist anymore. Your purpose is to transcend that. Your purpose is to live for me, to live for eternity, and to help others. Even as I came into the world to seek and to save those who are lost, Jesus said, now I am sending you out into the world to seek and to save those who are lost by preaching the gospel, the Great Commission, we call it. For as the Father, verse 26, has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. That's how spiritual life is possible. Because life... The spiritual life is inherent in God. It was not ever outside God. It was inherent within God. We derived life from our parents at the moment of conception. That life was given to us. But God has never been given life. He is life. It's always been a part of his character, his nature, his being. And because Jesus Christ is God incarnate, he is life. He's the prince of life. That's why he couldn't die and stay dead. He's the prince of life. I think it's Acts 2.24. 2, 
He said, I lay my life down for the sheep. I can take it up again. Because he has the power to give life because he is life. Again, 53 times in John's gospel, he talks about life. In Jesus' life. Life is in him. He is the source of all life and so on. Because John wants us to realize that he wrote his gospel that we might understand. That there is a life that God wants to impart to us that goes beyond anything we've ever experienced on this earth. And so those people who will receive him have this life. Those who reject him, well, he is coming again to judge. Verse 27 and has given him, the Father has given the Son authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. The first Adam was given dominance of the earth, Adam and Eve. It's yours, take care of it, be fruitful and multiply. They disobeyed God in the garden by obeying Satan who took the form of a serpent. When they did that, the earth was transferred over to Satan who became the God of this world. Of course, Satan is now is the God of this world introduced into the world all the horrible things that we live with on a daily basis. Things that man embraces because man is fallen and desires to obey his flesh rather than God. But Jesus entered into the world at one point to seek and to save those who are lost. That's true. But when he went to the cross, he purchased back from the usurper, Satan. He purchased back control of this world. Now, he hasn't taken control yet, but he's bought and paid for it with his own blood on Calvary's cross. He is coming back again to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that will never end. Those people who bow the knee right now to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but I want to receive you as my Savior. I repent of my sins, take control of my life. Jesus says, you're saved. And you will spend eternity with me in my kingdom. Those who rebel... Those who say, God, I don't want you messing with my life, or I'm an atheist, I don't even believe in you. If they go on and die in that state, they will be judged when Jesus Christ returns. Now, that statement, verse 27, really sets the stage for the last two verses, 28 and 29, where Jesus transitions from spiritual resurrection. We were once dead in trespasses and sins. We received Christ. We heard the gospel, embraced Christ. Suddenly we were born again of the Spirit. We came alive spiritually. We were resurrected from our dead spiritual state and now have spiritual life. And all those who receive Jesus can be blessed with this life. Those that refuse, well, they will stand before him as the judge of all the earth because now, having defeated Satan, he has won the right to reign. He is going to be king. And you know what? Those who do not want him ruling over their life now, he will not have anything to do with then. So the first order of business when he returns is to judge the usurpers who are still alive, the rebels who are still alive on the earth, I should say. They will be cast into Hades. I'll talk about that more in a moment. But now he transitions into physical resurrection. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation now when you read this if this was all we had to go on jesus words right here in john 5 we would be led to conclude that there is coming one great resurrection consisting of all believers and unbelievers who will be resurrected at the same time and stand before jesus christ we know from first corinthians 15 uh, Revelation 20 and other places that actually there are two resurrections. We don't see it divided here, 
But we know that these two resurrections, one for believers, which he calls the resurrection of life, and the other for unbelievers, which he calls the resurrection of condemnation, they are two separate resurrections, and they are divided by at least 1,007 years. You say, what in the 1,007 years? Yeah, that's right. Seven years for the tribulation period, and then a 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Let's look at the first one. He said, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming. Now, again, not a 60-minute period of time. Hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Notice he doesn't say, and now is. The hour is coming, and now is, verse 25. He doesn't say that here. This is a future resurrection. It hasn't occurred yet. It hadn't occurred in Jesus' day. It still hasn't occurred yet. But he talks about all who are in the graves. Now, this is not spiritual death, guys. This is physical death. This is actual death, okay? These people are physically dead. But the time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear my voice is what he's saying. Remember Lazarus was dead and buried in the grave for what, four days? What did Jesus say as he stood outside the tomb? Lazarus, come forth. Good thing he said Lazarus, come forth. He just said come forth, the whole graveyard would have emptied out. It's going to happen someday, okay? Got to limit that kind of part. Got to be careful. Someday he's going to say come forth. And everyone who was dead will come forth, just like Lazarus did at that point. Now he talks about two resurrections. We know that they are not together. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Let me stop there. Be careful. Because when many read this, they assume Jesus is talking about those who have worked their whole life and earned heaven. No. Understand, as we take this in light of all that God has said about salvation, Jesus said about those who are truly saved, you will know them by their what? Fruit. What is the fruit of true righteousness or salvation? Good works. Didn't Paul say that? Ephesians 2, 8, 9, then 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, salvation. Not a result of our good works, lest any should boast. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. That God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we are not saved by our good works. We are saved unto good works. They are the fruit of our relationship with Christ. The fact that you guys are here and many of you come here every week and you come here during the week and you read your Bibles every day or most of the week, you go to prayer meetings, guess what? You didn't want to do any of that before you got saved. Those are all the evidence that something has taken place in your heart. There's a, God has done a work, right? And no, we're not perfect. And yes, we do backslide once in a while. But I can tell you as I'm standing here, even as you can attest to me if you had the opportunity, we are not all that we want to be, but guys, we are not all that we once were. I am definitely not perfect. That's my wife. I'm definitely not perfect. <laughs> But I know that my Lord has begun a work in me. He's going to see it through all the way to completion. You know what completion is? The rapture, when I'm taken up in the clouds to meet him in the air face to face, and I am made like him as I see him as he is, and finally I receive my glorified, perfect body. And we're waiting for that day. Now, guys, I don't want to confuse, and I, so, you know, I did a whole series on resurrection call, what the Bible teaches about resurrection. Go online, you can listen to it if you're really interested in this, because we, we, we picked all this apart, the subject apart, like seven or eight uh, studies. But when Jesus talks about 
the resurrection of life. That's what the Bible calls the first resurrection. Now, it says that in Revelation 20. If there is a first resurrection, there has to be a what? Second resurrection, right? The first resurrection is the resurrection of life. The second is the resurrection of condemnation. When you study 1 Corinthians 15, a whole chapter devoted to resurrection. At one point, Jesus said that, excuse me, Paul said of Jesus, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. Well, as a Jew, he would have, his readers would have understood what he was talking about as Jewish readers. Because they knew that the Feast of First Fruits was a feast in the spring of the year when the first shoots of the barley harvest, a winter crop planted in the fall, began to poke their way up out of the ground. You would, they would cut it down, they would bring it to the temple or the tabernacle before that and offer it to God as a wave offering. And the idea was I was giving God the first fruits of my crops because he gets the first of everything. He deserves that. And as I honored him with the first fruits, he would guarantee me a bumper crop when the harvest was ready to be reaped. Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead, never to die again. He said, because I live, you will what? Live also. Live also. Let's talk about his bodily resurrection. And Paul's saying, look, the resurrection of the righteous believers, it's the first resurrection, the resurrection of life. You realize, though, as Paul's saying and what he's teaching in 1 Corinthians 15 is, uh, it's not a single event. It's a category. What do you mean? He says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. And then after Christ, believers, all people who put their faith in Christ, in their own what? Order. The Greek is tagma. It was a military term, signifying that when, when soldiers would line up according to rank, the highest ranking officers in the front of the line all the way back, Paul is saying, look, the resurrection will, be, will take place according to that order. won't be all a single event. Christ was raised first. That was 2,000 years ago. That's what we're celebrating today. When the rapture happens, the church will be raised from the dead, reunited with their spirit, which is in heaven with the Lord. The tribulation period will then take place, seven years. When the Lord comes back, at his second coming, at that point, and I don't have time to get into all the scriptures. At that point, listen, the tribulation saints and Old Testament saints are going to be erased. Tribulation saints, those people that came to Christ during the tribulation period and were brutalized and murdered by the Antichrist and his followers. Well, when Jesus comes back, he will resurrect them physically and all the Old Testament saints, Moses, Abraham, Isaiah, and so on. Now, their souls are with the Lord right now, just like his believers. Uh, Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's spiritual. That's our soul and our spirit. Our bodies, though, are made from the earth. When they die, are buried. They return back to the dust of the earth. But when the rapture happens for the Christian now, living in the church age, our body is resurrected, glorified, reunited with our soul and spirit, and now we are a triune being again, just like God is a triune being. We were made in his image and after his likeness. After the tribulation period, seven years, Jesus comes back at his second coming and he resurrects the Old Testament saints bodily and the tribulation saints bodily and they are allowed to enter into his kingdom and uh, enjoy the beauty of his earthly millennial kingdom. Guys, that's the first resurrection. It's all those events, all those resurrections are all in one category. The first resurrection, or as Jesus calls it here, the resurrection of life, 
or as we have called it, the resurrection of believers. The millennial kingdom takes place, a thousand years. At the end of the thousand years, I'm not going to have you turn there, Revelation 20, uh, verses 5 through 15, talks about this. After the millennial kingdom, the great white throne judgment is set up. And all unbelievers who have ever lived, whose bodies are in the grave, but whose souls went to Hades, which is not hell. If you're reading out of a King James, unfortunately, the translators took Hades and Gehenna, which we, Lake of Fire, we think of hell, and just translated them both hell. Hades is not hell. At one point, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire, or what, that is hell. Hades is a temporary place of incarceration somewhere in the center of the earth. It is divided into two compartments. One, Abraham's bosom, a place of paradise, where all the Old Testament saints went when they died. Because they couldn't go to heaven, their sins hadn't been paid for. They were prisoners there, but it was a paradise. They were comforted in this place called Abraham's bosom. But then there was a gulf, like the Grand Canyon, and on the other side was a place of torment where unbelievers went. Now, when Jesus Christ died in the crowd, remember what he said? As Jonah spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, excuse me, Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so shall the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The tomb was not the heart of the earth. Paul said in Ephesians 4, before he ascended back to heaven, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth, set the captives free. Moses, Abraham, Isaiah, uh, Isaac, all these folks that were in prison but in paradise but couldn't leave there because their sins hadn't been paid for. Jesus Christ had paid for their sins, goes down, unlocks the prison doors, and led them all up into heaven, Ephesians 4. So now, for the Christian who dies, absent from the body is present with the Lord. But this other place of torment, this other side of Hades, still very much in operation. And at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom, Jesus Christ is going to set up the great white throne judgment, and all these unbelievers are going to be resurrected bodily to stand before the Lord. Of course, they think this is going to be their day in court. I know when I stand before God, I'll plead my case. I'll tell him what a good person I was. I know he'll let me into heaven. Get the tape from Friday. We went into this in detail. They don't realize that one sin will keep them out of heaven. Just one. And you know what? They were born with it. It's called original sin. The only way for a sinner to ever get into heaven is not by working their way in, because you can't. It's by receiving Jesus Christ, whose blood will pay, has paid for their sins. And when they receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, he takes his blood and writes on their ledger, the book that contains all the sins they have ever or will ever commit, he writes paid in full on the bottom with his own blood. And as Paul said in Colossians 2, he takes them out of the way. That's why you can't be judged. That's why Jesus said, once you believe me, you'll never be judged. There's nothing to judge you for. Your sins are gone. God opens up to your page. Oh, it's blank. Paid in full, written on the bottom. Good enough for me. Come on in. Because you know what? Jesus did all the work. But for those people who refuse to receive him as Lord and Savior, guys, their sins are not paid for. And they will stand before God. The books will be opened. It says in Revelation 20. You know what those books are? One is the ledger that contains all the sins they ever committed. And one is God's word. Again, John 5 talks about this. 
And God takes his word and compares it to their life and says, look, does your life measure up to what I said? Well, no, Lord, but I thought it was good enough. If you're not perfect, you're not good enough. You should have read my word. I told you that. Only one person who was ever perfect in this world, that was my son. And I allowed him to die for you. You could have had his blood pay for your sins. But you rejected that. You thought you were good enough. And now you have to stand before me and hear me tell you, if you're not perfect, you're not good enough. Nobody's perfect except for Jesus. So they will stand before the righteous judge of all the earth, the great white throne judgment. He'll open the books. This is not their day in court, guys. The case is already over. The verdict was already declared in, in the Garden of Eden when Adam blew it. This is just the sentencing phase. All their sins will be used to determine their degree of punishment in hell. That's all it's going to be. Everyone who stands before the Lord at this great white throne judgment are unbelievers, and they are all going into the lake of fire. It doesn't have to be that way. Guys, this is what Resurrection Sunday is all about. Because what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago, how he died the third day, he rose from the dead. Because I live, you can live also. In me is life. I want to give you this life. You have to receive me as your Lord and Savior. What a blessing. See, you know, it is so tragic that people don't understand. They, you know, they're creatures of earth, locked into time, worried about their schedules. Don't ask themselves the really important questions of life oftentimes, like, why am I really here? What is life really all about? And most importantly, what's going to happen to me when I die? Well, the Bible tells us that. They're just too busy to read it. How sad. How sad. Look, I don't want anybody in this room to miss out on this opportunity because Jesus Christ died for us and rose again. He is offering eternal life to everyone who will put their trust in him right now as their Lord and Savior. And someday, he will resurrect you, give you a glorified body, and you will live with him forever in his kingdom. Folks, let me just say this as we close. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a Christian, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. If you're not a Christian, this is as good as it's ever going to get. Think about that. Sure, it's not easy to be a Christian. We live in a fallen world. The devil's really ramping up his attacks. I understand that. We live with the constant spiritual opposition. We don't fight against flesh and blood, of course. Against principalities, powers, and so on. The forces of wickedness in the heavenly realm. Coupled with then, of course, all the physical issues we have to deal with. You know, uh, worrying about job security. Or maybe you've lost your job. Worrying about where the money's going to come from to pay the rent or buy the kids food or so on. So I understand. There's a lot going on. But you know what? Nothing we suffer here on this earth can ever compare to eternity. And God says, look, if you receive my son, I'll take care of your physical needs. Just trust me. But I don't want you to spend eternity apart from me. I so love you that I gave my only begotten son to die for you. That whoever believes in him would not perish in hell, but have everlasting life. So if you'd like to know more about what it means to really give your heart to Christ, it really isn't that complicated. Before we knew Jesus, we were rebels doing our own thing. What he wants us to do is come to him, confess our sins, say, Lord, 
I'm done living my life. I want you to take over. I turn it over to you. You're my master now. You tell me what to do, where to go. When you do that, eternal life becomes a part of your life. It, it enters into you. And for those of us who have received Christ, we can tell you, our lives have never been the same. Not always easy, but man, I have a purpose. I have security. I don't worry about what the future brings because I know who holds the future in his hand. And guys, that's the hope of Resurrection Sunday. May everybody in this room turn your life over to Christ right now if you haven't done it. Father, we thank you. We thank you so much, Lord, for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were not a victim. You laid down your life freely for us. You were a willing sacrifice. And Lord, thank you because we know that there's only forgiveness in your blood. And once we receive you, not only do we receive forgiveness of sins, and you promise us we'll never perish in hell, but Lord, wonders of wonders, you actually say, but that's not all. I'm going to adopt you into my family. You're going to be my kids. And I'm going to bless your lives because you belong to me now. And so, Lord, we thank you. This was all made possible by what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago outside the city of Jerusalem when on Resurrection Sunday morning he stepped from that tomb alive. The Prince of Life who promises to give spiritual life to all who will come to him and receive him as Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to bless us, Lord, in the sense that we live for you now. You died for us. Give us grace to live for you, to be a light in this dark world. So many need you, Lord. Give us grace to be good representatives, faithful witnesses. Lord, we thank you and praise you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.